podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. You're listening to Uncovered with Barat Sundarason and Jared Kimber on the 99.94 Network. Welcome to Uncovered. I'm Jared Kimber. Barat Sundarason. I, I don't know where he is. Luke, you're just going to have to heckle him on Twitter until he comes back on. Uh, what is it, Beastie Boy 07? Um, I suggest, uh, you know, daily um, messages on Twitter. Is he on Instagram? He's probably on Instagram. Yeah, he's on Instagram as well. Um, annoy him there as well until he comes along. No, he's just having some issues, but, I mean, not like issues. Well, I mean, he might be having some issues, but he couldn't get on is, is the point. And, uh, you know, I'm still trying to recover from essentially covering two test matches overnight at the same time. Uh, even huge thanks to the New Zealand and Australian batters for making them just far shorter than they needed to be. But it's, uh, it's, I don't know if I've ever done that before that sort of, what would I have been on like a 10, 12, 14 hour cycle probably. So yeah, it was all a bit intense um, and everything else. So we will soldier on without Barat here today, but plenty to talk about. I mean, the idea of uncovered of course is to look at the, you know, what's been going on in in uh, cricket over the last couple of days. And there is plenty to go with there. So um, Barra, you know, just abused the man. Tell him that his hair isn't as silky smooth as, as he thinks it is. All right, let's start with India-Australia. I think that's the more interesting of the two test matches. Although I, in the end, I, I think I saw less of it. <laughs> well, actually, I watched the Australia um, innings, but I watched it afterwards because there was like a gap between the two test matches. And I thought I'd have a, a quick sleep um, and I'd get up. And sometimes what I do is... I kind of record the cricket and then watch it, you know, with the the old TiVo fast forward style thirty second thing, so you can you can uh, catch up very quickly and watch a whole day's play. And also, it's probably a better way of actually watching some, it sometimes because you see the patterns of each delivery um, over and over again. Although it doesn't work as well with spin. That's a whole subplot. The point is that uh, I wasn't expecting Australia to lose quite so dramatically. There's a new video up about India at home. I think the interesting thing for me is that. You know, these teams keep turning up. So, we, you know, Australia, uh, New Zealand, England. I'm trying to think who else has played in India of recent times. But over the last, you know, two or so years, and we keep focusing on how all these teams, you know, are not particularly good at playing spin and, you know, are, are struggling in these conditions. And, uh, you know, there's all, all sorts of talks about the pitches and everything. But the, the overwhelming pattern at the moment is that India is just so much better than everyone else. And I think... A lot of people got upset when I said that India was the best team in the world, even after New Zealand beat them in the World Test Championship. Um, despite the fact, don't, I don't think that means that New Zealand weren't worthy winners. You know, we we, we saw the 2021 World Cup. Uh, England didn't win that. I still thought they were the best team in that tournament. That's that's how tournament play goes. That's how you know one-off games um, happen. You know, injuries, selection, all those things play a, a huge part in a one-off uh, victory. But the more you delve into India's numbers, the more it's just incredible. They, I think someone might have asked the question on the latest wagon wheel of where this fits into the greatest home runs of all time. Um, and it's certainly right up there. Um, it's probably the best home run we've seen since Australia's home run. Uh, we, and then, of course, there's the West Indian one. I'm trying to think if England had one. I don't think England ever did. I think Australia probably always chipped in with the odd victory um, just, to, just to keep them honest. Um, there was a there was a, certainly a period very early on in cricket, you know, uh, when England started uh, 
Australia did very well in the early um, contests, and then England started picking their better better teams from all the players available to them, and they certainly got back on top for a little while. But quickly after that, Australia sort of came back in. So, you know, if you look, you're looking at something fairly historic here. I think when you look at Indian cricket, and the interesting thing is, I still don't, I I don't feel that most Indians fans are kind of understanding what they're seeing. I, I feel like there's a lot of Indian fans who are still looking at the negatives rather than being like. This is the best generation of Indian cricket we've ever seen. Okay, you're upset that KL Rahul is, is is no longer in the team. Is 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 sorry, is still in the team, and you don't think he should be. I mean, <laughs> that's the biggest issue you have. It's sensational, really. And I do think that there is something slightly different about the you know having lived through the Australian era and now living through the Indian era. There was a real, real strong sense and i think this probably came from alan border and his personality um and also the way he would talk about cricket as a captain which was we had to struggle for everything we got and so we should be thankful for kicking everyone's asses i think by the mid 2000s that's when you start getting the articles everywhere saying is australia winning too much um and ruining world cricket but it does take a long time for that sort of that to kick in whereas with india it's kind of almost been instantaneous there's you've been you know, this obsession with how they do in, in, in the Sena, um, you know, countries, uh, there's been this almost uh, obliteration of the fact that this is by far and away the best bowling attack that India has ever had. You know, that should almost be on every conversation. There's still this sort of looking back at the glory era of the Indian batting lineup. And, and I think you could make a fairly solid claim that the Indian batting lineup uh, even even if you adjust for the fact that no one's making runs anymore and so these batters look worse than they probably are and a lot of that great Indian batting lineup batted throughout one of the greatest batting periods of history. Even if you adjust for that, I still think that older Indian batting lineup was slightly stronger. Uh, but they didn't have an all-rounder, let alone two other all-rounder lights um, that allowed them to bat to number nine or ten. Um, or sorry, eight or nine. I suppose they could bat to nine or ten. I think I put out an Indian 11 where you could bat to nine or ten um, recently. So it, it's possible which again shows you just how much incredible flexibility they have that they didn't have in that other era. And even if that batting was slightly better, Srinath is a fine bowler. I'm not sure how he fits into this. He would even fit into this current uh, lineup. And Okumble, perhaps because he's a wrist spinner, um, you know, m might be the third spinner in this situation. Uh, and, and also, you know, that, not quite as good a batter as maybe someone like Akshar Patel, but not far away, you know, that, that kind of level again. Um, so I think from that, uh, that perspective, um, you know, and Habajan Singh, very, very good bowler, but he's, he's sort of that Stuart Broad level of bowler where, you know, their overall numbers are absolutely incredible. And I don't think you should ever, uh, you know, um, talk down about them, but also that they got dropped during their career. This is not an all time great uh, level player, but Habajan was incredible. And, what would he be? He might be the third best finger spinner um, if he was playing in India now, maybe the fourth best. You know, it's that's how strong this current lineup is. And that's one thing that I think that a lot of fans have not really come to grips with. And perhaps, you know, I, I did this for another article recently. It might have been about the World Cup article, uh, or, you know, India's World Cup campaign. When you look at Indian cricket and you look at the Indian population, it's such a young population uh, that they didn't have to go through as many as the struggle years as other people did. Um, and and so they don't realise how important this is, I think, in a way that you could really notice in New Zealand when New Zealand, even when they were starting to rise, even from 2015 onwards, 
New Zealand people, even younger New Zealand people are like, this is special. This is not something that has happened very many times in our history. And then by the end, and uh, I've had fights with Jeremy Coney about this. I'll try and get him on the podcast one day so we can have a good argument about it. But I think by the end, it would be hard to argue that that wasn't the greatest era of New Zealand cricket, even if pound for pound, maybe Jeremy Coney's team would have given that uh, that New Zealand team a, a, good, a good run for its money. I still think that just on test basis alone, that was the best team. I think also it happened to coincide with probably being the best white ball team as well. So, you know, from that perspective, New Zealand fans really seem to get it in a way that Indian fans just don't. It, it's really interesting to me watching it uh, from that perspective when, and there's a few of the, you know, trying to think of the right word, uh, Indian supremacists. So when Australia was on top, that was the big thing in Australia. So many Australian cricket fans became Australian supremacists of, uh, we got kicked around the mud for so long, and now we're going to kick everyone else around the mud, um, and it's going to be awesome. What we didn't get in Australia was as many people who were just like, um, uh, there are issues here, uh, we're not doing this right, blah, blah. In fact, in Australian cricket, it's part of the reason I became a cricket writer is because no one was looking at the team from a crit critical point of view at all, even when they were losing series, even when there were issues, um, because you just had to kind of agree with everyone that, that they were the absolute best. Whereas with India, it almost feels to be the overwhelming, and this could just be cricket Twitter and, and cricket social media and you know those sorts of places, but it does feel that the overall arching thing is that the Indian team would be far better if like one batter came in for another batter. And it's just like, it's very rare in the history of cricket that those decisions um, change things. As you know, to go back to Nathan Lehman, uh, the England analyst, it's like mostly the top eight players essentially pick it themselves. You know, you might pick one player based on form, one player be uh, pick uh, based on um, conditions. And then, you know, the other players touch and go between where you go and you might go with someone who's a little bit more rounded rather than someone who's a single skill person, whatever that may be. Mm, it's the top eight that we need the games, right? <laughs> They're the ones who are going to face the most balls and bowl the most balls and everything else. So uh, it is really interesting to me that, uh, that this has become uh, such a polarizing time when realistically um, India is just awesome. Now, I think part of the polarization, which almost has nothing to do with test cricket, of course, is that they have underperformed at World Cups. Um, and I've certainly, you can go back and, you know, follow my writing and my video essays on that to have a look at, you know, the thought pro process behind all that. But what, what I would say is that it's it's um, it's just a brilliant team. I love the way it works. I love the combinations. I think one reason that Shardul was someone who, who, who was so interesting to me as a cricketer is that sort of Tim Bresnan, Trying to think of who else. Andrew Simons, like, role. And he's not as good a cricketer as Tim Bresnan or, or Andrew Simons. No, certainly Tim Bresnan before his elbow fell apart anyway. Um, but that kind of, when you have the ability to play a player like that and put them in a, in a position to succeed, even though, realistically, they're not in the 20 or 30 most talented players in your country, but they fit a particular role at that time. Um and, you know, you have the ability to almost carry them, but use them successfully. I've said this a lot about Stuart McGill over the years. Like, Stuart McGill, had he played every test match, would have ended up with quite a poor record. But Australia was so strong, they could pick Stuart McGill when they needed to. You know, and, and you look at Mike Hussey, um, Stuart Clark, guys who had incredible records. I saw both of them playing in their early 20s. They wouldn't have had early, great records if they started playing earlier on. You know, Stuart Clark was a bit all over the shop at times and a lot faster as a bowler. Uh, and Mike, Mike Hussey is another perfect example of a cricketer that this whole thing about him knocking on the door for years, you know, he was dropped by Western Australia. Um, so I think that 
I, I think that in that case, there's actually just a real, for me as an analyst, it's a really exciting time for Indian cricket. And, and when, you, when I looked at the World Cup teams, the flexibility and the range of different playing styles that they, they, can, they can use in a, you know, from one squad in a World Cup, I think is absolutely incredible. So, no, I, I, you know, they're really good. Uh, if you want to have a look at um, anything else uh, about the about the how hard it is to bat in India at the moment, just done a big video about that. There's an article up as well. Um, the, the other note I had from India's uh, game was Virat Kohli's form. I thought he saw the ball very, very well. Um, I love the way he played Lion early on. Uh, that sort of moving across and back um, and, you know, picking the gap. That's kind of, it's almost like a, the way the South Africans used to play off spin. I always thought South Africans, they had that period of Callis, Amla. I'm trying to think who the other guy was. It might have been a, a, um, AB as well, where they just had this ability to score almost at will against off spin deliveries in a way that meant that the off spinners had lost a lot of their power. I think, you know, a finger spin is in general part of their their overall skill is the ability to keep you on strike for longer than probably most forms of bowlers. I think, you know, a lot of the most um, uh, hard-to-score players in, in history have been, you know, finger spinners over the years. I think of um, Lance Gibbs and, what's that, Hugh Tayfield? Is it Hugh Tayfield, I mean? The South African. I always forget his name. Um, you see some of those, uh, those off-spinners and, you know, really good at sticking up an end. And if you have that ability to score off them naturally, and what he did was, of course, Vera, uh, was he either came very far forward or went very far back. I, I think, again, if you look at some of the times where he was struggling against spin, uh, it was probably in that middle area where you're playing a little bit more from the crease um, rather than, you know, going back into the crease or coming quite forward. And all the analytics now, and, you know, you can talk to any good player has been throughout the history of cricket and they'll tell you the same thing you either want to have your inception point as far forward as possible or as far back as possible um and and i think watching coley be interesting to see if that was something um that changed there but india won very easily um i thought the whole travis head thing was absolutely fascinating from an australian point of view you have someone who they probably weren't going to take on the tour they probably took on the tour as much as anything because wanted to get him uh some time in the nets some you know get used to playing in asia eventually he's going to have to play in asia more right even if it's not against india it's going to be against someone um they need him to play better against spin they specifically need him to play better against off spin and then there was that rumor before the match that he might open the batting and i, I thought that was a really really interesting thought process my first other than the fact that it caused issues with Warner and Kawaja, obviously, my first th thought was that's probably not a bad idea. Um, we see him in the middle order. It was a very interesting, very odd innings in the first uh, one. Um, you know, missed a lot of balls against Ashwin on the, if I remember correctly, though, on the inside part of his bat. I think a lot of them hit his pad. A lot of scrambling around the crease, but then you know, uh, was done in by a very good ball from I think it was Shami, wasn't it? Maybe around the wicket, uh, not moving his feet, kind of just poking at the ball a little bit outside off stump. Uh, really interesting that he would go out to a seam bowler. Uh, but then the second innings, he backed himself. I think you can probably get away with that for a short period of time. And my theory was always that he might not last long on day two if he kept going the same way. And it's a bit, a little bit like Alex Carey. We saw Alex Carey try that in the first innings. And there's kind of – the pitches are too in favor of the spinners and the spinners are too good for, I think, you to play in a reckless way for a long period of time. If you go back to, for instance, Adam Gilchrist in 2001 – 
he did a very similar thing. He got away with it for a little bit longer, and I think the pitches were a little bit better, and the bowlers weren't wasn't quite of this quality. Although, as I said before, they were still uh, brilliant bowlers. Um, and I and I do believe that you can get away with it for a little t- period, but then eventually, and, and you see this. This is a very similar thing you see with seam bowling. You see people come to Australia quite often, and you'll get you know a middle order player or even a tail ender will come out. And they'll make a score in the first innings, uh, you know, that they play in a test match series, and then it will just disappear. And that's because they took a lot of risks and they kind of, uh, if anyone knows about boxing, they kind of did a, a you know, um, leading with their right hand. Um, so, you know, they kind of shock people by, you know, uh, punching them in the face, uh, we, you know, without without doing any jabs. And over time, it doesn't really work. And Alex Carey did that, and now Travis Head's done that. That doesn't mean that Travis Head can't, can't work it out. What I did like, though, is that first innings, I felt like he, it was just scratchy. Like he wasn't really sure what he was doing at all. I felt at the very least in that second innings, I was like, okay, well, he's decided that this is his plan. That's the first step, right, of actually understanding how you're going to try and score runs um, in any location. Uh, the last thing I want to talk about was Nathan Lyon. I think we did the Uncovered last week and probably the Wagon Wheel as well and just so many people asking questions about that's is that the end for Lyon? Um, he's no good and everything else. I think we've still... See with Lion, just he is uh, a very, very talented bowler. I don't think the the weird thing is, I don't think anything we saw from the last game to this game actually changes how I feel about Lion. He's not ever going to be a consistently high wicket taking threat in Asia, but that doesn't mean he, you know, we've certainly seen him take a lot of uh, five wicket hauls in Asia. Doesn't he have some? He's got some weird stuff where he's got the most five wicket hauls against um, uh, India, I think, in, in Test cricket or something bizarre like that. But we also know they're going to be long periods of times when, when he doesn't do that. And I think he needs a particular kind of pitch that, that suits him. And I thought this pitch was just that little bit faster. Um, and then the last one, I, I had, didn't look at the, any of the Crickviz data. So I don't know if it spun uh, more, uh, sorry, Hawkeye data. I don't know if it spun more in this game than it did in, in the previous game, but it felt like it spun quicker. And I think, especially when Nathan Lyon was bowling in that last game, it didn't spin quicker. And because he is just a little bit slow and we've seen him try and get quicker, but he still doesn't have that sort of natural pace. I feel like when he's bowling quicker, uh, he's probably losing something else from his action in a way that say Jadeja isn't. Um, but uh, good for him for getting some wickets and um, Kuhneman, I thought Kuhneman did a, a fine enough job. Uh, I mean, what a weird way to do that. Uh, I probably I probably won't ever do this, but I would love to go back and just write a book about all the weird Australian spinners uh, who suddenly get like thrown into a game in India. Um, you could even do some, you know, like Gavin Robertson coming back from retirement from club cricket. Um, you got Bryce McGain when he didn't actually play and got injured um, on that tour. Um, obviously, Jason Crazier is kind of you know the dude. Um, I'm trying to think. Was Colin Miller's first tests in? India or had he played before? He might have played before, but even his story is absolutely remarkable. Um, he was probably this very weird aside here, but Colin Miller might have been the uh, Australian spinner who was best suited to Asia uh, just because he was pretty fast because he used to be a fast bowler, of course. Well, medium fast, let's, let's be fair. Uh, all right, we'll, we'll take a break here. And, and after the break, uh, we'll cover a little bit of New Zealand, England here on Uncovered with Jared Kimber and Blank. All right. Welcome back. Um, remember, if you, especially as Barrett's not around, if you want uh, to ask any questions and you're in the YouTube, uh, feel free to pop them through. I've seen there's a couple of super chats, which I'll get to in a little while, but anyone else put a question in. And if it's uh, if it's for me, I will get to it. 
so where are we? New Zealand, England. That's where I was. Yeah, I, I thought one of the most interesting things for me on the whole New Zealand, England, well, the New Zealand side of the New Zealand, England series is just how poor that bowling attack of New Zealand was. They had five, well, if you want to count Darren Mitchell, they had six bowling options in their team. And you would say that as it currently stands, there's only one dead certainty, um, which is Tim Southey. Neil Wagner, he had a bizarre game because uh, he took wickets in the first innings, but he bowled really bad at times in that first innings. In the second innings, he took a couple as well, um, but ended up with their second most expensive figures in the history of Test cricket in, in runs per over. Um, it really was just an absolutely batshit game. And then after him, you had Blair Tickner, who I'm assuming they like his pace, but it feels like to me it takes him a long time to get up to that pace. There's, it, he has to try very, very hard in a way that, you know, maybe some other fast bowls around the world do not. And if he's not really getting any pace off the wicket, he doesn't move the ball sideways all that much. Um, he's not particularly accurate because of his action. Um, he's got an incredibly um, – club cricket action just uh it just feels like you know you take uh you take 20 k's an hour off him and he's you know bowling first change in a club game in otago um it really you're really interesting watching him come in he just doesn't come in like a professional bowler then you've got um uh scott kugeline who you know on moral reasons that people have a lot of uh, questions about him but i actually thought he probably bowled better in this game than i thought he was capable of but you know there's not a lot to his bowling. Again, not very accurate. Uh, ref, roughly the same pace as as Tickner. So not fast enough to really scare top-level players, but also, you know, uh, not not medium-fast or fast-medium. He has the ability to touch fast when he has to, but not consistently, for sure. Um, has the weirdest tick I have ever seen. This is only going to work if anyone's on um, uh, on YouTube watching it. So sorry to everyone listening to this later on the podcast, but he puts the ball in his fingers as deliberate as I've ever seen anyone. And then he holds it up really closely to his face, which means that there's no way the batter can't see any detail of it. The other thing is because it's a pink ball, he can see exactly if he's going to bowl a cross seam delivery or he's going to try a wobble ball or he's going to try, you know, swing it or whatever he's going to do. And then he runs in presenting the ball the entire time. I'm trying to think of Brett Lee, Chris Wokes. I can't think of too many bowlers I've ever seen who are that deliberate. And I would say that Kugelheim was even further on that. But again, he's a um, Blair Tickner was probably, if Blair Tickner was your fourth best bowler in a really strong bowling lineup, I don't think he would be seen as a problem. But being your third best in a weaker bowling lineup was pretty bad. Kugelheim is a fifth bowler. Michael Braceway is a uh, Braceway? Michael Bracewell is the fifth bowler. Um, I thought he, he did well in that in that second innings, but you know he's a fifth bowler. He, he's he's handy and he can bat and he's still learning. There's a bit of Moeen Ali about him um, in that he has the ability to rip the ball like a frontline spinner and he thinks like a batter, but he doesn't have the groove um, of Moeen Ali. And to be fair, anyone who watched early Moeen Ali, I think Moeen Ali. We're talking about finger spinners having a low. Um, uh, runs per over. I think Moanelli has one of the highest runs per over of any wrist uh, spinner, finger spinner of all time. Um, he's got an, an alarmingly high economy. And uh, Bracewell's another one where once the batter works him out, I feel like they can score quite quickly. But because he does rip it, it's not like a who's another sort of finger spin part timer, um, fifth option type guy. I'm trying to think. We don't have many in, anymore, but he's not a roller. 
You know, he's not a bowler who comes in and just rolls the ball out of his fingers and he's going to be accurate and, you know, keep it in a good spot. He's legitimately trying to spin the ball. Um, and that brings a lack of control sometimes. But it does allow him to be in a position where he can take wickets, but he should go for a lot of runs. But it's just a considering we're just coming out of the New Zealand golden era, and I know Kyle Jameson and Matt Henry were not available, but watching Kugeline, Bracewell, and Tickner was startling for a team that not that long ago um, had probably the best pace bowling in the world. Was Southie, Wagner, Bolt, Jameson. Yeah, okay. Even Colin de Graham with their little, you know, fifth options. It's a huge step back. Like, I think if had they played in this game, it would be interesting to see how de Graham did against, uh, you know, the baseball style. But the other side of that is um, he might have been their third best bowler <laughs> in this situation. So, uh, huge problem for them. Of course, they also didn't make any runs in New Zealand, uh, <laughs> which is not particularly good either. I thought they... Um, I mean, who are they missing? They're missing BJ Watling um, and they are missing Ross Taylor. Everyone else is dead. They've still got Devin Conway. Uh, they got Latham. Uh, Will Young was not in this side, you know, but they had Daryl Mitchell. Um, they still have Henry Nichols. It's not exactly a bad batting lineup on paper, and yet kind of in both innings. And, and all credit goes to England, the, the three bowls that England took in did not bowl many bad balls. In fact, they bowled some incredible deliveries. But I just didn't feel like there was any plan from New Zealand on how to get through other than you hopefully would nick a few. And it was very interesting in the second innings. I think Latham might have done it, but Darren Mitchell continued to do it. We saw him do it in England as well. I've coming down the crease a little bit at times, which is something that the England batters have started doing. And it's weird that I'll, I'll probably have to do a video on it and try, I'll try and get some, um, uh, uh, some footage of it to show you what I mean. But if you watch T20 cricket, one-day cricket now, it's very rare that someone comes down the wicket to a seam bowler. If you watched one-day cricket in the 90s, that was that was the fad, right? That's what you had to do. Um, and, and it's really gone away, but it's become a thing. And I think it's probably Joss Butler, Ben Stokes. I'm trying to think who else might have. Some, there was someone else, I think, involved in, it, in, in England. And I think they did it for different reasons as well, if I remember correctly. I think with Butler, he felt like, I have to go back and see if I can find an article about it. But I think with Butler, I think the idea was that um, when he was facing slower bowlers, he just wanted to kind of speed the game up a little bit. Whereas I think with Ben Stokes, um, it, it was it was probably more about a little bit of aggression. And then we've seen Zach Crawley do it. Did Ollie Pope might have done it as well? So there's some other players doing it because of LBWs and, and all these different reasons. But it's it's a very interesting thing. Um, uh, it, just, watching Zach Crawley do it, I think was absolutely fascinating because – uh, teams are trying to working him out by bowling just that little bit shorter, knowing that he'll still drive anyway. So he's coming down the wicket um, to make that little length closer to where he would drive from, which means he's on the move and he's not particularly, he's a bit big and clunky as a batter. So once he sort of gets down the wicket and starts to move, he kind of gets himself into the wrong positions. But yeah, I, um, th I'm not saying New Zealand have to try something like that. And I think it was Conway might've been batting outside off stump at times. In the second innings, that was the first time I thought, oh, they're actually thinking about this um, and they're not just allowing England to bowl to them. Um, but just on England, it's really, it's, you know, we've seen them play so well for a long time. This is the first time that, you know, kind of everything was in their favour. This this is a test match you would have expected the old England to win just because 
having Ollie Robertson, Stuart Broad, and Jimmy Anderson up against essentially Tim Southey and Neil Wagner um, with the pick ball is such a huge advantage to England. Now, obviously, the, you know, they play, uh, their batting still played a big part of it. And, you know, the, the funky field placements and all these different things. They got the luckiest wicket I think I've ever seen uh, with Tim Southey managing to uh, scoop a low full toss down the leg side to a fielder that happened to be 20 metres off the boundary for a hook shot. Um, but, yeah, they, you know, they did all those sorts of little things. But I think this is this is more the co- kind of classical kind of England win, which, which I found very interesting. Uh, and then I suppose the other major thing is uh, Harry Brook, who I, I think he, I mean, I think he's got a record of already well, the fourth most runs in the, his first seven or eight test innings or whatever it may be. But the way he is going about it, I, I remember it was Mike Athens had said it was the best young batter he'd seen since Holly Pope. The minute I saw Harry Brook play, I thought this is this is you know the next generation of of Joe Root. Um, I'm still f- struggling to find a way that teams can get at him. I think the most obvious one should be short pitch bowling. And I want to see him in a prolonged period of time playing, uh, you know, really good short pitch bowling. And he did face short pitch bowling in this test, but it wasn't particularly good. Um, And it also wasn't, it was kind of from a, it always felt like it was from a position of weakness because England were generally on top in the game. I'd like to see him facing short pitch bowling on a slightly quicker pitch in a situation where England are struggling a little bit more, but it's beautiful to watch. If you haven't seen that straight drive that he plays um, where he lost the ball over long off for six so effortlessly. Um, and there's a lot of people talking about KP. It's funny. I, I went back and I watched a bunch of KP shots, similar kinds of shots. And my first thought was that um, Harry Brook just, it looks cleaner when he does it. You know, there was always an element with KP of sort of, there was extra movements that he didn't need to make, I think, at times. Whereas with Harry Brook, it's almost like a refined version of that. Maybe, maybe Harry Brook is like a, some weird um, combination of Joe Root and, and KP, but a fascinating player to watch. All right, we'll have one uh, quick break here. And then after the break, uh, I will come back. We'll talk about the Women's World Cup. And then I will get to your questions here on Uncovered with Jared Kimber and Lank. Beautiful. Oh, yeah. So just on the Women's World Cup, actually, there's a game going on at the moment. <laughs> so uh i was i was watching that I, I, all the prendergast is um she's someone I, I made a video about her batting and i've been watching her in, in this tournament so far her fielding she took a great catch today might have been um the mandana wicket if you want to find the replay i think it was um out at deep point coming in um i thought she bowled really really well i think she can bowl better too um, some of her lines and lengths i didn't really understand why she was bowling those lines and lengths uh, but she's sort of big and rangy with her bowling, um, and she can clearly bat and she can clearly field. I think she's a really, really exciting um, uh, prospect going forward for um, Island women. It, it's incredible to see someone like her come through the system. Um, and, uh, you know, because Irish women's cricket really has kind of been stuck for a long time. Um, and to see her coming through so quickly, um, you know, she's 20 years old. Um, sorry, I'm just looking up her record. I, was, I couldn't remember how old she was. I knew she was young, but yeah, she's 20 years old. And in, in um, T20 cricket so far, she's averaging uh, 23 with the bat, 24 with the bat, sorry. Um, and she's averaging 23 with the ball. I, I just think it's huge for women's cricket to have um, someone like her coming through, um, someone as talented as her um, from a place like Ireland. And and we've already seen it with people like Sarah Boyce, um, 
I forgot the name of the woman who who's been picked up in the women's IPL draft as well. Uh, you know, you watch Fair Break as well, and you're seeing some of these players uh, play the you know the Thai wicketkeeper whose name I can never ever remember. It's just such an exciting time for women's uh, cricket, and I think it's good to see stories like All Apprentice because probably as we sit here now, the four teams we thought that would make it through to the semifinals are going to make it through to the semifinals, give or take South Africa. Um, you know, early on in the tournament, it looked like Sri Lanka might be able to get one of the women's semifinal spots. They had the, you know, they lost to Australia, which was fine, but I think they had quite a poor game against um, New Zealand from the, uh, the, I saw the hour long replay of that one. So I didn't see the entire game. Um, but I think they should be a little bit disappointed with themselves for that particular game. And of course, in the other one, I thought Ireland kept themselves quite well in this game against India. Um, I see there's rain, but um, in that game as it currently stands. But um, you know, so Ireland still have a chance, I suppose, of of coming back there. But uh, I thought Ireland did quite well. Uh, but you know, England and India look like they're the most likely teams to qualify um, over there. It's not. It's fine. You know, we're, we're seeing it in the men's game as well. So it'd be unfair to pick on the women's game. Uh, for uh, for a trend that we're certainly seeing within the men's game, which is, you know, it doesn't matter how many teams you have in this World Cup, it looks like there's about five to six teams uh, who are going to have a realistic chance of winning it. And with the women, it's probably going to be three uh, to four at most. Um, and that that's just how these things go. But it would have been great if Sri Lanka could have held their nerve together a little bit longer, you know, maybe at least put up a good game against New Zealand, got a little bit closer because they're going to end up with a very bad net run right now. Um, and unless India do something silly in this uh, game against Ireland, which of course, by the time we record this, we might know more about, um, but India should probably win that one as well. But um, yeah, I just haven't seen as much of it. I, the uh, trying to find hours to sleep. <laughs> last weekend were not particularly good so um i saw about i i, I was watching the um india west um india island game up until um i came on to do this podcast but uh yeah i i've really enjoyed what i've seen in the women's world cup all right let us have a look at a few questions from the um from the comments uh pratik has a super chat remember if you want something uh very very different oh, sorry if you want if you want to guarantee your questions are answered on any of these things usually when Barrett's around it's a bit harder for us to answer but when Barrett's not around I can always do that um so you can always get a super channel on if you are uh, definitely want your question answered if you're in YouTube with us and Pratik says how are the Duke's Kookaburra and SCU balls different over the course of a test innings how does the surface affect each ball so the balls are made for each surface and so that's the one difference with Kookaburra in that it is kind of more of a generic cricket ball, uh, which is probably why it doesn't, it, you know, it, I suppose Kookaburra is a bit more like a ball that is um, that you get off the, off the rack and the other balls are uh, handmade and made specifically for the locations in which they are used, which means that uh, Kookaburra is probably by design not going to be as good a ball as the, as the other two are. Um, Dukes is, you know, uh, there is... As far as I'm aware, there were three different versions of Dukes made. There's a West Indian version, Australian version, an English version. Uh, the Australian version's, I think, gone now that they don't use it in Shield Cricket, uh, but they had different lacquer and all those three different ones. As far as I'm aware, SG is only one kind of ball, but is obviously tailored towards one kind of market in, in uh, India and, and I, I suppose Asia, but India is where it's used. Um, so f to begin with, they're very, very different. So Kookaburra's... Um, usually would swing quite violently at the start. And SG balls are very similar with that. SG balls tend to um, uh, 
reverse swing uh, a little bit more is what what some people have said, and that they're a little bit more consistent in their reverse swing uh, than than a kookaburra is. Kookaburras can go soft, and so even if you're going to get reverse swing, the ball gets a bit too soft and it doesn't quite work in the same way that it should be. Um, uh, the Duke's uh, balls, they don't swing as much early on. Um, so what happens with them is as the lacquer comes off, they start to swing. And generally they swing a little bit more um, later uh, Later on is is the, uh, the best way. They usually stay a little bit harder. I think that has to do with the lacquer directly. Um, and yeah, they stay a little bit harder and they give you like... Remember the England, I think the England New Zealand Test series of before or after the World Test Championship, but must have been that summer. If you have a look, England and New Zealand were swinging the ball pretty much seventy overs of the game all the way through, and they were getting you know uh, movement off the seam. Uh, the one difference at the moment between the Kookaburra and the Dukes and the SG ball is the seam. So I think. And I haven't looked at this recently, so I don't know if SG have changed it, but the Kookaburra scene was reinforced and made uh, better to mimic what the Dukes was doing. Um, and that's why the Wobble Ball works a little bit better uh, when you're using the Kookaburra now. So that was 2020. And you can go back and have a look. I did an article about how it changed one-day cricket and T20 cricket quite dramatically when they when they upgraded that ball. Um, and I don't think there's any, been any changes to SG of recent times. So SG is kind of the least interesting ball only because it's the only one used in one location, whereas Dukes you have to take, uh, being that Dukes is thought of as the best ball and it's also, uh, you know, been used in three different locations um, uh, professionally in two different locations internationally. You know, that's the, that's the one. And I, I think it's just been ahead of the pack um, for, for a long period of time. Although I'm sure there's great uh, balls out. So thank you, Patik, for your super chats. Ash says, uh, lots of kangaroo journalists um, started saying that we will thrash India on a neutral venue in World Test Championship. Uh, but what if it was held in Sri Lanka or UAE? Would they think the same? Or is it just to satisfy their audience? Just what everyone says when they're losing. Every time I've ever seen India lose in Australia or England, I've seen the exact same things. You know, it, and it's kind of boring and you know, um, predictable and silly, but it's a, it's a thing, um, that, uh, people do now. And it seems to be, you know, I don't know, uh, I don't know. I just, that's this sort of stuff just tires me. Cause it's like, okay, you're still losing now, <laughs> you know, will you prepare properly, uh, for that? And, uh, you know, you know, Australia didn't win the last series against India, um, at home. So I don't know what that really means. The Real Arm says, Jared, stat padding, this podcast hype. I love how we've got to the point on Cricket Twitter where um, stat padding has become a... I, I want to talk about stat padding, actually. That's kind of why I picked this. I don't really understand the sentence, Real, Real Arms, if we're being honest. But stat padding is a really, really interesting thing. And I was talking... Um, I can't remember who it was, but it was to an England player recently about this, about Dalit Milan. Dalit Milan, all the England... Uh, there was an innings they played against South Africa. So it must have been the first ODI against South Africa. And we, we were on TalkSport commentating, and we're getting so many people coming through going, oh, Milan, stat padding again. Look at him, stat padding, playing for himself, blah, blah, blah. Of course, Milan went out, and England lost the game. <laughs> and he didn't lose the, they didn't lose the game because he was behind the rate either. It wasn't even that kind of situation. The game is played in runs, right? Stat padding is a slightly different thing. 
if you really talk about stat padding, what you're talking about is empty calories. So you're talking about the one day players who end up at the top of the run um, leaderboards in T20 competitions, but have a strike rate of 115, 120, or they have a strike rate of 120 for most of the innings. And then they slog at the end. So that it looks like their numbers are better, um, but they've actually put pressure on the rest of the team. That's a fair kind of stat padding. If you're just calling stat padding every time anyone makes runs, that's literally the job is to try and make runs. Um, and there are also going to be players who just struggle to score quickly when they first start their innings. You know, not everyone has the ability. You know, we are a long way into T20 cricket and Luke Ronke still stands out massively as a player who had the ability to have an incredibly high strike rate from the start. I mean, you could argue that Chris Gale stat padded because he had slow starts, but it's probably more just the fact that Chris Gale just took five to 10 to 15 balls to really find his range. Um, and, and I also think in Chris Gale's case, it was also that, they would quite often hit, feed him a lot of fast bowlers early on, and he preferred to hit, you know, fast, medium, medium, fast bowlers or, or spinners. And so he was waiting for the correct matchup to come on and to attack. Um, that was probably different in the beginning of his career. I was there when he hit Brett Lee out of the Oval twice, for instance. But towards the end, you know, once he got over 32, 33, 34, he was really picking the matchups that he wanted. Um, and uh, that's not stat padding. Again, that's what you should do. A lot of basball if you actually what what they're doing is that sim it actually weirdly comes from the way that the West Indians play T20 cricket. Okay. This ball is in this area. I'm going to take this risk to give me my, the maximum chance of a reward. Um, and, uh, but it's actually far more robotic and mechanical than people understand. And there's still going to be players out there who have the ability to uh, just turn the ball around. I don't know what that has to do with real Ams's question, but there we go. Bob says, probably one of my most disappointing days of cricket I've seen. Do you think Australia can bounce back for this in the next two tests or even for the Ashes? Oh, yeah. I mean, they bounced back from the last disappointing one to actually play pretty good in, in, in the start of this test match. Um, I I think there's there's something that we're definitely noticing a pattern with their spin bowlers, that they're so much better with the new ball than with the older ball. And that just might be that Jadeja's natural bowling is not as affected by the older ball. And Ashwin is such a smart thinker that, you know, it, you quite often just see how often he changes theories, you know, on a whim of, okay, I'm going to try this now and I'm going to try this now. I'm going to try this now in a way that um, Nathan Lyon would never, would never be able to do. And so perhaps, you know, if Australia had those two kinds of bowlers, they would be in a better situation in this test. They might've had a 50 to hundred run lead and uh, you know, they would have kept themselves in the match for a little bit longer. Um, maybe even, you know, won the game, but, what I've just said is maybe if they had two of the best spin bowlers and perhaps the best spin partnership we've ever had in test cricket together, that they would be better. They don't have that, right? They have two kids who are learning on the job and another guy who's, you know, safe and, safe and steady pair of hands. So I, I'm not too worried. I, I, I thought Australia would probably um, lose the series 3-1. Uh, with the change of venues, I probably would have updated that to 4-0. Uh, but a lot of that is just based on the fact that India is really good. And... Um, we we really have to we do have to accommodate for that. What I would say so far is that in both of these test matches, Australia has been in the game, and we tend to focus on the fact that it's gone really badly for them at the end, and that's absolutely fine because over the I was going to say over the course of five days, but over the course of I don't know two and a half days, four days, um, uh, India is quite clearly the better team. But this is not a situation where Australia has had not had chances. Um, you know, you know, they had a chance to stay within their game in that first test, probably from a slight position behind, but still stay within the game. Um, and they certainly had a position here. 
this is not a position where they've been blown completely off the map um, from the first ball in both games. And, you know, if, if they can manage two innings in a game, they give themselves a chance of at least fighting with India. Um, and at the moment, uh, that's that's probably, the, you know, India doesn't even need to bat. In, well, I was going to say it doesn't need to bat in the second innings, but hasn't really ne even needed to complete, you know, a full second innings yet, right? Emma says, how many decades would it take to produce a pastry like Jadu, Ashwin, and Akshar? I think we've had hundreds of them, haven't we? Um, West Indies probably had those bowlers. Um, I'd have to go back and have a look at the averages, but um, uh, yes, West Indies certainly had those. Um, Australia, what's Australia's best three-prong? Well, I mean, Gillespie, Warren, McGrath. Um, oh, that doesn't count, does it, because Warren's not a, not a spinner. I haven't not a seamer. Um, yeah, no, I, I mean, I think we've had uh, really, really good attacks like this before when it comes to seam bowling. Um, so it, it's it, the one different thing. I uh, This is really, really interesting because it almost doesn't count because we actually have a seam bowling trio at the moment, which is Hazelwood, Stark, and Cummins. Stark might be moving beyond his best, but at his absolute best, um, two of them could bat. Obviously, Hazelwood couldn't. I don't think... They could quite bat on that level. And I don't know if you do mean batting as well, but that's the one difference with spinners. The kind of athletes who end up being spinners generally throughout the history of the game have the ability to perhaps bat a little bit better, whereas being a fast bowler, perhaps because of your longer limbs, um, uh, perhaps because it's such a different physicality to to uh, batting and, and spin bowling, it, that doesn't seem to be as much um, overlap uh in in those sorts of um positions it might also be selection bias because especially in western cricket i think teams have generally tried to pick their spinner who can help a little bit with the bat whereas that's usually not something that teams look at when they're looking at seam bowlers um so i don't know if selection bias plays a part in that but um no we certainly had pace trios like um uh you know jadeja ashwin and akshar if this question is particularly about indian cricket they've just got their best bowling lineup ever um in, in seam bowling um so it's going to take a long time before you can develop think about all the institutional knowledge that needs to go into some being someone like r ashwin he does not come on his own and if you think about that from an institutional knowledge point of view then you go to jadeja who is a world-class athlete like most of our best all-rounders have probably been yeah, I don't. I don't think it's a. I. I don't know if I've ever covered this before, but I don't think it's an accident that you know Keith Miller and Ian Bowden uh, both played professional football. Uh, you know, th there is certainly something about all rounders and athleticism that is really, really important. I, again, to be a player with as well rounded and be in a system as good as Jadeja is to get the absolute most out of him, all these things take a long period of time. Um, so if you, if that's an Indian based question, I, I don't know what your answer is, but it's always going to be tougher when, um, because seam bowlers develop in such a weird stilted way in Asia. Uh, you know, it, it would be like, if you look at South African cricket over the last couple of years, their bowling stocks are probably as deep as India's. And it's the first time that their bowling stocks includes having three test quality spin bowlers available to them. You know, Shamsi, I think, has a better first-class bowling average than um, uh, Maharaj or Harma. Um, and obviously, Harma's a fantastic uh, bowler. And, we, you know, uh, we haven't even seen that much of him international level. Maharaj has done very, very well. Um, and then you've got the incredible seam bowlers, and of which there are too many to name. Um, 
why did they have three spin bowlers at, at this time? Well, the wickets have started to change. So it really, a lot of these things do require on wickets. Um, and if you go back to, we talked about whether um, Jadeja and Ashwin was the best spin bowling pairing of all time. So the other obvious one to go back to is Clary Grimmett and, and Bill O'Reilly. And when, and when they played together, Australian wickets were completely different, right? And they also allowed for two different kinds of leg spinners. Whereas now, um, as we saw with McGill and Warren, that just that wasn't what that's not what Australian wickets are anymore. So the conditions play such a huge part when you're talking about developing people over a long period of time. Jimesh says, you may have already answered this, but I just joined, so let me ask you again, where is Barat? I don't know, man. Hit him up on Twitter, ask him where he is. He's supposed to be here. Absolute bludger. Nikon says, are the commentators today more biased than earlier? So many great players sound like cheerleaders for their team rather than analysts of the game. Hmm. I don't think they're more biased than ever. I mean, I grew up in under Channel Nine. It would be it would be hypocritical of me to say that modern commentators are more biased than um, the commentators that I grew up with. They were the biggest cheerleaders ever. My my favorite Channel Nine comment was when Ian Healy, I think it was Ian Healy, I might have been Slats. It was one. It was Healy or Slats was trying to explain Dale Stain to an Australian audience, and he said he's kind of like the James Pattinson of South African cricketer. You know, the leader of their attack. Yeah, we, I mean, well, you know, the amount of times that we've compared Dale Stane to G James Pattinson over the years. Um, to be fair, James Pattinson was in good form at that time, but he barely played and Dale Stane was Dale Stane. Um, so I grew up with that. So I would never say that they're more biased now. I do think there is, um, I do think there are some players who have come through. There's, let, let me take a back, back step. Some of the best playing commentators we've ever had had journalistic back backgrounds so you know richie benno um christopher martin well actually christopher martin jenkins is not a player is he but um, ian chapel had a journalistic background um there are some others out there as well who who you know wrote you know wrote proper columns from around the world even someone like Sonal gavaski you know wrote his own own book so he had to write there's a discipline in that that is completely lost to modern commentators they come straight off out of, you know, being in the team. And, you know, I've worked with a lot of famous former players, and especially when they first start commentating, they'll be like, off mic, they'll be like, this guy, blah, 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 blah. You get him on mic and you ask them a safe question about the same topic, and they'll be like, no, no, he's fine. And you're like, what? Just what? Um, and, um, and it's because they don't want to break those relationships and, you know, Mitchell Johnson talked about it on his podcast with Barrett where, you know, it's a real issue um, when he, when he spoke out and he was even a few years um, taken away from the game. And so there is a part of that. There is also a part of it that you're probably going to get more work from your local area. Um, but I really think it's, I think it's a combination of about three different things. One, we don't have professional commentators. And what I mean by that is in most sports, you have people who commentate you know, seven or eight months of the year. That is their job. They are trained by a broadcaster. They think about it as a broadcaster. Um, even if they don't come from a journalistic background, they have really strong editorial control, um, all these sorts of things. Cricket commentators, you get some work, then you don't get any work for four months. Then you do three tournaments in a row. Um, then you don't get any work for six months. And you, it, it, you're not a professional commentator in the same way. There, you know, there aren't many Simon Dool, Ian Bishop type people out there. That's a real, real issue um, for learning the skills. And it also means that quite often when they're not commentating, they're not watching all the games, right? Um, they, you know, that's not what they do. The, 
the other thing is that editorial control of cricket commentary has, in my experience, never been particularly good. I'd say it's a lot worse at in TV than it is in radio, weirdly enough, which doesn't really make any sense because you should want the product to be even better in TV. But in TV, they just want famous names and they don't, they just don't work on them very well. If you go back and you listen to the, when Channel 9 was a great commentary and you talk to people like Chappelle and Mark Nicholas, they'll say that the editorial control was so strict. Um, and that in, in modern cricket doesn't happen. Generally, people are afraid to take uh, tell famous ex-players that they're being lazy or that they haven't done a good stint or they don't educate them. They just bring players straight in um, uh, from teams and then the player has to kind of sink or swim. And I think the third one is that players don't really see it, former players, I should say, don't really see it as a hard job. Uh, they see it as the cushiest job ever. I've had so many former players tell me that. And I always say, well, if you think it's the cushiest job ever, that just means you're not doing it very well. Uh, it means that they're just getting by on the fact that they were former players and that they're famous and that, you know, maybe they can crack a couple of jokes and occasionally they'll go, oh, have a look at this guy's footwork. You should be doing the work. And uh, the, the only other thing I would add is I just don't think there is a level of, in, in American sports, and I don't know if this happens in football and, and other Euro major European sports, but in American sports, you quite often you meet the coaches and the key players before the game and you can say to them, oh, I don't know anything about this kid. Tell me about this kid. Or, you know, um, what style have you guys been running recently? Or I caught the game, this game the other day and this guy was doing this. The very good commentators I've worked with and Steve Harmison and Darren Goff are really natural at this. I think because they're naturally social people. They will go out on the ground and they'll talk to people. Ian Bishop is another one. I remember Ian Bishop drilling me for, and, and Dirk Nannis drilling me for information when I was working for Scotland, right? Trying to find out more and more information so they could do it. But a lot of commentators don't do that. They don't turn up on practice days. They don't um, turn up early and ask questions. Um, and and so I think the overall quality of commentary is, I, I think that cricket has moved forward massively over the last couple of years, professionalism and cricket in so many different ways. I don't think commentary has. And it's, I think it's a real, real shame. And I think there's much better ways of being able to do things. Um, and um, so far, it uh, hasn't quite worked that way. Um, do I think they're more biased? I, I think all cricket media is more biased now than it was before. But I think that is because all media is more biased now than it was before. So it's almost a separate question for you, Nikon. If you have, if you, I think newspapers now are a lot more biased than they were 20 years ago. Um, but in some ways, it's harder to be more biased now in cricket because in the old days, Malcolm Conn could write whatever he wanted and no one would ever read it. And these days, you know, the highlight, yeah, you read Malcolm Conn from today and you read him from 15 years ago, he's pulling punt. Uh, uh, that's unfair He's not as bombastic as he used to be. And that's because if you do, you spend all your time on social media getting abused. You have to be a lot more factual and everything else. Um, but the bias in a general sense, I would say that even in press boxes, when I first started, if anyone clapped in a press box, um, they were poo-pooed. I would say that now there's a lot more people more like me who are fans of the game, who happen to be good at broadcasting or writing or anything else working in press boxes. And then there's a few countries where that's actually like part of the, the thing that the Bangladesh journalists are the most fanny journalists that you can come across. They ride every ball. Um, and perhaps it's just because they're younger. I'm, I'm not sure what the, the difference is there. Um, but yeah, I do feel like it's different. And I and I do think commentary is changing. And I hope that it can change for the better going ahead. Um, but I, I don't know if I would sit there and go, it's more biased. Um, of all the things that I would levy at it, I'm not sure that's particularly the case. Manvith says, opinion on KS Barrett. 
Uh, do you think his batting will hold up while touring or will England go with the wicket keeper who bats better? Well, obviously, Rochelle Pump will come back, hopefully, when he can. Um, so, Cass Barra is, for me, he's almost like an ideal backup, right? In that he's probably not going to confuse you and make you feel like uh, you need anyone else. But you're also going to know whether, you know, what you're trying to work out with Cass Barra is whether he's Ben Folks, right? And that's kind of a perfect situation to be in. I, 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 was, I was talking about this with a coach recently of, I almost think the, the ideal team going forward has two wicket keepers, right? You have your batting wicket keeper who probably plays 70% of the time. And then you have your specialist wicket keeper who plays um, as a backup player, but also in, in conditions when you think, well, you know, maybe, maybe there is a pitch where you think it's, it's going to be inconsistent bounce and you just want a better wicket keeper there, or um, you want someone who's just better at stumping or, or, or moving their feet to the seam bowls or whatever that may be. As a batter, yeah, I haven't been, I, I haven't seen enough of him so far to say that I think he's good enough. I, I, I was shocked when he was batting at six in the first innings of the first test. I think. I think that was right. Because I I think he batted six once, unless I'm just making that up now. But um, I, I, I saw him as a number seven, or maybe he was listed at number six. I saw him as a number seven of the brief bits that I'd seen of him. And you look at his record and he kind of profiles like a number seven at test level. If he's a number seven at test level, because you have Jadeja, that gives you enough flexibility that it doesn't really matter. But when Jadeja's injured, that's that's an issue, I think, going forward. Um, but I don't think he's, you know, I don't think he's a good enough wicketkeeper to displace Rashad Pant um, ever from that side. Although maybe one day they want to, free Rashad Pant and just let him play as a batter. Um, we've certainly seen with Brennan McCullum, Kumas and Gakara, um, the Walcott weeks. I always get confused which one was the wicketkeeper. Um, uh, um, there's too many. There was actually too many Ws born in Barbados by the same midwife. Um, but, yeah, I think, I think from that perspective, we've seen a couple of players who are just elite-level batters become a lot better when they give up the gloves. Statistically, um, Amal Desse and I looked that up once. We couldn't find any um, difference in in first-class cricket of using the gloves and not using the gloves. But in test cricket, there does seem to be um, more of a difference, although it's from such a small sample size uh, that it's really hard to know. And the other thing is, a lot of those guys, if you know, you look at uh, McCullum and Sankara, when they gave up the gloves, they were actually reaching their peak batting years, uh, you know, of experience um, and and skill level, which means that, of course, there was going to be a jump up in their average. There would have been even if they've kept the gloves. So it's even trickier to work out those sorts of things. Um, but yeah, I haven't seen enough of him so far. Um, I think he looks pretty tidy. A couple of times when he feels a little snatchy at the ball for someone who's such a obviously good wicketkeeper, but that could be nerves, um, you know, early on in his career. It's one of the weird, weird things about when, when when someone is more of a specialist wicketkeeper, when when they come through, any mistake they make, everyone goes, oh, might as well just pick the guy who could bat. And it's like, well, the guy who could bat might come in in his first test match and get rolled for no runs, right? Like these, these things all... Just because you're a specialist doesn't mean that you're going to be absolutely impeccable at your special skill from the first game you play. You still got to be nervous. You know, um, Ian Healy's nickname uh, was he was Ian Healy, and I can't remember now. But Ian Healy wasn't very good in his first couple of games. Matt Pryor was terrible in Sri Lanka, right? And people, those sorts of players got better. SSBI says if for some reason Sri Lanka qualifies for the World Test Championship, do you think the ICC will change up how the standings are calculated? Um, 
So for those who don't know, I wrote before or made a video actually before the series, uh, the World Test Championship, saying that essentially Sri Lanka had the easiest schedule. I think that's right. Um, uh, it was them or Pakistan. I think it was Sri Lanka. And that if Sri Lanka had been in slightly better form, uh, that you would have said that they should make the final. And of course, at that point, Sri Lanka was a bit of a shit show. So no one was expecting that to happen. And they have. They've played well. They've got some good wins in very favorable um, series, if we're being honest. And the way New Zealand's currently playing, Shankar has still got a chance of coming home. Uh, it, but your bigger question is, will the ICC change up how the standings are calculated? I don't know. Probably. Um, but it's a such a flawed, stupid system that I'm not sure there is a perfect system for it, unless you actually make everyone play each other more often. Um, or you have divisions which would be the other way of doing it. Um, but at the moment, it looks like, depending on what the schedule is, one team is going to be, you know, there's going to be a couple of teams who are going to have very, very friendly schedules and a couple of teams that won't. Now, having said that, I don't think Australia are that far away from qualifying and they had a tougher schedule. I think that's right. Um, certainly for them, because did they have Sri Lanka, Pakistan and India? So traditionally, you know, They'd probably rather go and play in New Zealand and South Africa and the West Indies, right? Um, so you could still be a good team and overcome that, but it does feel that the fact that I picked New Zealand India last time and Sri Lanka was the team that I thought had the easiest schedule this time does say that it, it, your schedule seems to have a bigger impact on whether you're going to qualify than anything else. And if that's the case, then it's a stupid system, right? And and all schedules are biased, right? Like it's very very rare that you have a situation where any kind of schedule in sport is completely fair, but this one is, it's not, I mean, it's not a world test championship. It's just a bunch of series that happen to be played that we call a world test championship at the end. And, uh, you know, good luck to Sri Lanka, uh, for making that a uh, huge thanks to everyone for coming on again, uh, and asking your questions. Uh, remember, uh, you can find Bharat on Twitter or on social media and absolutely rip into him. Uh, I don't know how many episodes he's lost. Someone can do the stats on me uh, for that. Maybe they can point it out to him as well. Uh, but big thanks to everyone for coming up in the chat uh, with some some great questions there. Um, and I will what, – what's next? Oh, England New, New Zealand series rolls on, doesn't it? So I'll be covering that next week. Maybe I should have a little bit more time to watch some more women's cricket as well as, as we get around to the finals aspect. We've got some really cool videos. I'm doing one on Neil Wagner, uh, which is it's kind of a bit dodgy for me to go back and do a Neil Wagner video, right, um, after uh, covering Neil Wagner for so long. Uh, well, sorry, in that, in that original video, that probably is why half of you are on this uh, YouTube page to begin with. But, um, yeah, I've got a Neil Wagner video. I've got another couple of videos on the Women's um, World Cup, which is really interesting. We've got two videos in Ravaged Asia that we're currently in pre-production. Um, so, hey, if you're a Ravaged Asia fan, uh, come come on come on board for those. Uh, but there's plenty of content coming up, and uh, I will see you again for Wagon Wheel at the end of the week. And, uh, yeah, if you don't know how to find Barat on Twitter, um, just uh, try and track him down in the street and go, how about an episode of Uncovered? We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the 99.94 Network. Cricket every day. Remember to download our app or just search for your favorite team at 99.94 where you find podcasts on Google or YouTube. This show has an ad-free version via Patreon and there are many other extras available there as well. There is a link to the show notes. The show is hosted by me, Jared Kimber. 
Barrett, Tim DeRiesen is my co-host. It is produced by Nick McCorriston. We also have a great production team from 42 with Rati Joshi on socials, Orajoti, Senapayi, and Maida Akam producing podcasts. And Makunda Bandredi is the head of our YouTube account.